I read one place in some instruction to a preacher about what to do when your time is short. And the instruction was, cut out your introduction and your conclusion and set the middle on fire. <laughs> and so this morning we're going to try a little of that. Luke chapter 23. Let's start in verse number 32. Luke 23, verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Oh, Father God, I pray. Holy Spirit, fill me now and help me to preach to the very best of my ability. Fill us all that we might receive the message from you today. I pray you would speak to us, teach us from this wonderful, wonderful word, the word of the thief and the word, Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. We mentioned last week that our Lord was crucified on a Friday, about 9 o'clock in the morning, and remained on the cross until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. We mentioned that he spoke three times, seven times, from the cross during those hours that he was there. First, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And here in the text we read today, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. In John chapter 19, Woman, behold thy son. In Matthew 27, why hast thou forsaken me? In John chapter 19, I thirst. In John chapter 19 again, to tell us thy, it is finished. The topic of which our cantata will treat so well in just a couple of weeks. And finally in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Last week we talked about that first one, Father, forgive them. Today I'd like to talk about the second which we just read here today. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Here we have a brief exchange between two dying men. And in that brief exchange, I want us to notice that we have both a robber's request and the king's response. Two points today. Number one, a robber's request. Verse number 42, Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Two men were crucified with Jesus, one on either side of him. If we were to read the other gospel accounts, we would see that for a while there, both of them were ridiculing and, and criticizing and joining in the taunts of the crowd. But somewhere along the line, Luke, and Luke alone tells us this, Luke points out that somewhere along the line something changed for one of those thieves. Two men were crucified with Jesus, one on either side of him. One died lost and is in hell today, and one died saved. 
Because he saw something in Jesus that changed his mind. And that man is with Jesus in heaven today. Two men were crucified with Jesus, one on either side of him. Of these two men, Warren Wearsby noted, he said this, quote, It was providential that Jesus was crucified between the two thieves. For this gave both of them equal access to the Savior. Both could read Pilate's superscription, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And both could watch him as he graciously gave his life for the sins of the world. Two men were crucified with Jesus, one on either side of them. And these two men illustrate the two responses people have to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, The cross of Christ is to some a savor of life unto life, to others of death unto death. To them that perish it is foolishness, but to them that are saved it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Consider with me this morning the words of the dying thief, the one thief, the one who changed his mind. Verse 42, he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I see a couple of things in his words. I see, first of all, words of confession. Confession. Go back just a couple of verses. Verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, the one we're concerned with this morning, answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Sometimes we use a little outline for how to, how to describe the mechanics of salvation. And we call it the ABCs of salvation. It describes how a lost person can become a saved person. I believe that outlines in your bulletin this morning, the ABCs of salvation. And in that little outline, the A stands for admit. It describes our need to admit that we are sinners. And we use verses like Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We use verses like Isaiah 64 verse 5, you are indeed angry for we have sinned in these ways we continue and we need to be saved. But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags, and we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Those verses and others like them tell us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Now, I don't know what caused this man's heart to change, but somewhere along the line, somewhere in the proceeding, he began to look at himself. And he began to look at the Savior dying beside him, and he began to look at him in a different light. And somehow he admitted that he was a sinner. Isn't that what happened in verse number 41? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. He admitted there that his condemnation was just. He saw the reality of his sin and he owned it. He owned it. True penitents acknowledge the justice of God and all the punishments of their sin. One man said. Another said he acknowledged the justice of his sentence and attempted no extenuation of his crime. A self-confessed sinner is not far away from a forgiving saint. Nobody can be saved until they are lost. Nobody can come to Christ. Nobody can receive the gift of salvation until he admits his utter need for it. Until you can say, until I can say, until anybody can say, I indeed justly am under condemnation for my sin. You never come to Christ. You'll never see heaven. You'll never be saved. And so in the words of this thief, we see words of 
Confession. In the words of this thief, we also see words of acceptance. Somewhere along the line, I don't know where, this thief began to recognize Jesus was not dying for any sin of his own. I don't know how that became clear to him, but it did. He came to recognize that there was no sin in Jesus. Isn't that what he said in verse number 41? This man has done nothing wrong. It's interesting, isn't it, how all throughout the crucifixion narratives, the Holy Spirit made sure to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus was not dying for his sin, that Jesus had no sin. The innocence of the Lamb of God is reiterated to us over and over and over again. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That was Jesus. He He knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We see it. We see it when Judas said, I have betrayed the innocent blood. We see it when Pilate said, I find no fault in him. We see it when Pilate's wife said, have thou nothing to do with this just man. We see it when the Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, watching Jesus die, said, surely this was a righteous man. And now we see it when the thief said, this man has done nothing wrong. In that little outline, the ABCs of salvation, the B, the B, Reminds us that we must believe that Jesus died not for himself, but for us, for you, for me. We use verses like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We use verses like Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know how it happened in the heart of this man who was hanging alongside of the Lord Jesus Christ. But somewhere along that line, he recognized and he believed that Jesus was dying not for his own crimes, not for his own sin, but rather for the sin of this wretched thief at his side. Somehow he believed that Jesus was the one who could save him. He called him Lord. He said, Lord, remember And somehow he believed that Jesus was indeed the king, attested to by the sign that was hanging over his head. Somehow he believed that he had a kingdom and that it was greater than anything of this world. And so he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he suddenly believed. And because he suddenly believed, he called out to this one who alone was able to save him. And of course, that's the C in our little ABCs of salvation, isn't it? Call. Call upon him. And we use verses like Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.13, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. But here we have the thief. The thief calling. And his call was, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Not much of a prayer, is it? Remember me. Not much of a request. But it was enough. It was enough. We're going to be holding a baptismal service soon. We've had several that have requested baptism, and and, uh, so we'll be filling the pool shortly. But it's a very important thing to notice that baptism played no role in the salvation of this thief. Don't you thank the Lord that Jesus didn't say to him as a response... When he said, Lord, remember me, Jesus could have scratched his head and said, well, he couldn't have scratched his head. If he had just looked at him and said, pity that we don't have time to get down from this cross and get into the baptismal waters. Otherwise, you could be with me in heaven. 
He didn't say that. The fact is, baptism is an important step for a Christian, and no Christian is ever going to grow in their, in their walk with Christ if they do not obey Christ in this first matter of obedience, which is baptism. Believer's baptism. And so if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do it. As I said, we're going to be doing it soon. But it's so important to recognize baptism had nothing to do with his salvation. This thief was not baptized, and Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This dying thief was not saved because of baptism. He was not saved because of any good works, any works of righteousness on his part. He was at the end of himself. He had nothing left to offer. He had no ability to earn heaven. But as such, he's a wonderful reminder that none of us can earn heaven. None of us can do work. Salvation is not something we earn. It's something that's purely a gift. It's the grace of God bestowed upon us. As Paul said to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You need not pray an an eloquent prayer in order to be saved. Peter, when sinking beneath the waves, simply cried out, Lord, save me, and it was enough. And here the thief just simply cried out in desperation, Lord, remember me. And it was enough. Here in this simple conversation between two thieves and between one thief and the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the entirety of the gospel. We have the ABCs of salvation. Do you see it? We have him admitting. We have him believing. We have him calling upon the one who alone could save him. And so I wonder this morning whether you've done the same. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? The words of the thief show confession of his need and acceptance of the gift of salvation that Jesus was dying to offer. But what about the words of Jesus? What about the response? From the king. Let's look at that for just a moment. In verse number 43, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Three wonderful, wonderful truths I see in his response. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's take them in the opposite order that Jesus spoke them, just because I want to take them in the opposite order of the way Jesus spoke them. Notice he said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, said only one person in the Bible received the direct promise of heaven, and he was a thief. Of course, he was referring to this passage, but Jesus didn't use the word heaven there, did he? He didn't say, today you'll be with me in heaven. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is an interesting word in the Bible. My studies tell me that it's a Persian word that was adopted by Greeks and Jews, and it means a, quote, delightful garden, unquote, a place of beauty. A place of refreshment. The scholars who translated the Old Testament into Greek used paradise to describe the Garden of Eden. And eventually, as we, as we see as we study throughout Scripture, it came to become a picture of heaven. Prior to the cross, and it's important to see the great dividing line that the cross was in the history of humanity, but prior to the cross, paradise referred to the righteous part of Hades or Sheol. Two words that both simply mean the grave, simply mean the abode of the dead. Paradise referred to the righteous part of that. Prior to the cross, that's where all, saved and lost, went when they died. The saved there experienced comfort and bliss, but 
the lost experience torment and punishment. You say, where are you getting all that? I'm getting that from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, when Jesus described the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember what he said? The rich man died lost. The rich, the, the, uh, Lazarus died saved. And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. It was a place, paradise, that looked completely different than what we expect heaven to look like. For one thing, they could see each other. For one thing, the lost and the saved could actually talk to one another. I don't understand it. I just know that that's what Jesus described in Luke chapter 16. That was paradise before the cross, the abode of the dead, a place where the saved and lost were in some proximity to each other, but the saved were in comfort and the lost were in torments. But when Jesus died on the cross, he went to that abode of the dead. He went there and took the saved from there to heaven where they would be with him forever. Paul spoke of that, I believe, in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Those in Sheol, Hades, the abode of the dead, could now enter the presence of God in heaven. For the way was made clear. The cross made the way clear. The veil in the temple separating mankind from the holy of holies was ripped into. And man could now be with him. After the cross, paradise and heaven both refer to the same thing. After the cross, paradise became heaven. Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So now Paul said they're one and the same. When we die now, we go to heaven. After the cross, and because of the cross, when we die, we find ourselves immediately in the presence of the Lord in heaven. And we read, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so the thief's request, remember me. The king's response, today you will be with me in paradise, in heaven. The second thought that I see from that is today you will be with me, with me in paradise. Pastor Phil recently preached a couple of sermons on the topic, what makes heaven heavenly. And he mentioned in those good messages, and we can see it here as well, that the thing that will most make heaven heavenly, most make paradise like paradise, is the fact that Jesus is there and that we will be with Jesus. You know, Jesus prayed for that very thing. In John chapter 17, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul would one day confess it was the great desire of his heart to be with him. He said to the Philippians, I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And so the thief's request, Lord, remember me. And the king's response today. You will be with me in paradise. And then one other thought I see from the king's response, and that's the word today. Today. Today you will be with me in paradise. When a Christian dies, they are immediately with the Lord in heaven. 
There is no delay. There is no intermediate state. There is no purgatory during which additional penance must be done. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is instantaneous and it is immediate. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 16, when Jesus told that story about the rich man and Lazarus, read that on your own and you'll see. Lazarus died, he was immediately in paradise. The rich man died, he was immediately in hell. No delay. Sheldon Van Auken was a student of the English professor C.S. Lewis in the early 50s. He wrote a book. He wrote a book called A Severe Mercy, and in there he described his last meeting with C.S. Lewis. Over one final lunch together at a pub, they had spent time wondering aloud about the nature of life after death. And when they had finished eating, they stood outside of the pub, talked for a few more minutes, and Just before parting ways, Lewis said to Van Auken, I shan't say goodbye. We'll meet again. The great apologist then plunged into the traffic to cross the street while Van Auken watched his friend walked away. And when Lewis got to the other side of the street, he turned around, anticipating that his friend would still be standing there. And with a grin on his face, Lewis shouted over the great roar of cars, Besides, Christians never say. And Christians never say goodbye because to close our eyes in the sleep of death here is to open them in the life of eternity there. All who know Jesus as Savior, just as this thief accepted him as Savior, look forward to a day of reunion with all those who have gone on before and all those who will come after. The thief's request, remember me. The king's response, this very day thou shalt be with me in paradise. One man paraphrased that, Thou art prepared for a long delay before I come into my kingdom, but not a day's delay shall there be for thee. Thou shalt not be parted from me even for a moment, but together we shall go, and with me, ere this day expire, shalt thou be in paradise. Hallelujah. Let me just share two thoughts from this, two things I want to share in closing this morning. First of all, I want to reiterate a truth that has kind of been all throughout this, because I think it's maybe the central truth that I want to make sure we're clear on. The central truth, perhaps, between this, from this conversation between Christ and this thief. And let me do it by illustrating with a story. Let me tell you about something I read. I actually read this in another sermon. It said the 2010 website of the Chicago Bears football team presented a series of videos that followed the team's rookies from their first arrival at training camp and on through the preseason. One video showed part of Coach Lovey Smith's first orientation talk with a rookie class. And, of course, the biggest thing on each rookie's mind is whether he will make the team. Rookies know that the team roster begins with 80 players who come to camp. After a few weeks, the coaches cut the team down to 65 players. Then, before the season actually begins, all NFL teams are required to trim down to 53 players. Of the 19 rookies who were invited to the 2010 Bears training camp, the team would likely keep only around seven. Lovey Smith knew this, and so he addressed the rookies' concern in his talk to the 2010 class, and his challenge to them was, quote, make us put you on the team, unquote. In other words, play so well in practice that the coaches couldn't imagine cutting you. Make us put you on the team. 
Take the decision out of the coach's hands. Let your performance make the decision for us. This man who was preaching this sermon and telling that story went on to say, he said, most religions and most people of the world think God makes the same sort of speech about who will get into heaven. Do you want to make the team and have eternal life? Make me put you on the team. Live such a good life. Do so many good deeds that I could not imagine rejecting you. Take the decision out of my hands. But he goes on to say the counterintuitive truth is God works on a completely di- different playing, uh, different level than football coaches do. People who think they can perform so well that they can make God add them to heaven's roster because they are so deserving of it will be rejected. This is the idea of salvation by works. It's the opposite of salvation by grace. God saves us by his grace and his grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, what a joy it is to know that if one will merely admit that they are a sinner, believe that Jesus died for them, and call upon the name of the Lord, they can be with him in paradise forever. That, that is what we learn from the thief's request and from the king's response. Good news. Great news. Glorious news. The gospel. But secondly, I'd like to close with a word of warning. A word of warning. Because I fear that some might hear the story of the thief and come away with the thought that you can wait until the the very last minute of your life And then call upon the name of the Lord and make a decision for Christ. That you could live like the devil throughout this life. Enjoy the pleasures of sin now. And then one day, someday, when you get closer, toward the end of your life, you'll settle accounts. And everything will be okay. And if such is your thinking, and it is the thinking of some, may I say with as much love as it is possible for a pastor to muster, you're a fool. You're a fool. That is not the message of the thief on the cross. The thief was indeed saved at the last moment of his life, but there's no evidence, no evidence whatsoever that he had ever been convicted of his sin before that moment. There's no evidence that he had ever come face to face with the Savior before that moment. All indications are actually from Scripture. This was his very first opportunity, the very first chance he ever had. And he grabbed it. Bear Grylls. You've heard of Bear Grylls. He's on the Discovery Channel's, what is that, uh, something wild. What is it? Man versus wild. One time Bear Grylls said, when you get a chance to be saved, you've got to grab it. And that's good theology. That's the message of the thief on the cross. The dying thief is a wonderful example of a man given one opportunity to be saved and grabbing it. It's not an example of somebody waiting until the end of their life and fooling away with their life the whole time. And then thinking they're going to get saved in the last minute, that's not the truth of it at all. One man said we must never use this thief as an excuse for delay in deciding for Christ, for it is likely he was saved at his very first opportunity. We have no evidence that he had ever met Jesus before. Matthew Henry said this gives no encouragement to any to put off their repentance to their deathbed, or to hope that then they shall find mercy. For though it is certain that true repentance is never too late, it is just as certain that late repentance is seldom There are very few deathbed conversions. Very few. There are innumerable examples of men and women coming to the end of their lives just like the other thief, unable to believe, unable to call upon the name of the Lord, unable to admit their sin. 
but there are very few examples of any coming to the end of their lives and finally seeing the truth. It seldom happens that way. J.C. Ryle said, One thief on the cross was saved that none should, dis- that none should despair, but only one that none should assume. Young people, you need to listen to the words of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible said. He said, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. In other words, do it now, for tomorrow may be too late. Trust Christ now, for when you get older, you may not, you probably will not be able to. You will not be more receptive to the Lord Jesus Christ on your deathbed than you are now. You will not be more receptive to him at the end of your life than you are now. You will not be more able to confess and believe then than now. Rather less, the Bible says, the thief says, do it now while you yet can. Because if not, you probably never will. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to sing our closing song. And if you, like the thief, recognize how very lost you are. And if you, like the thief, recognize that when he died on the cross, he died for you. And if you, like the thief, recognize that apart from him, you are on your way to hell, you won't even pick up that song. You'll step out the minute we begin to sing, and you'll run to this altar, and you'll flee to the cross. You'll say, Lord, remember me. Remember me. You won't wait until you understand it better. You'll act on the knowledge you have. All you need to know is you're lost, and he will save you, and you'll cry, Lord, remember me. You won't worry about praying some eloquent prayer. You won't worry about what other people think. You just simply flee to the cross and say, Lord, remember me. You'll do it now. Because the lesson of the thief is not to put off trusting Christ until the last minute, but rather to grab the opportunity to be saved the second it is offered to you.